All right, everyone, welcome to another excellent episode of the Because Football Podcast. This is your host, Coach Andrew, and today we've got an awesome guest, Maher Mazahi. Maher is a Algerian football journalist based in Algiers, Algeria. He's covered North African football extensively, and he's had his worst pu- work published in publications such as the BBC, Guardian, The Telegraph, ESPN Africa, and Al Jazeera English. Maher, on the eve of, uh, or almost on the eve of AFCON, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andrew. It's a pleasure being on the uh, Because Football podcast. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, for sure. So I guess, you know, first thing here, we I like to to go with each guest on a personal note. Like, what are some of your earliest experience of, of, of playing football, of experiencing it? Like, when you go all the way back, kind of where, where did it all start for you? Yeah, so I, I grew. I was born in Detroit. I grew up in Canada and uh, in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. And so um, my earliest memories are actually just playing football there in in Windsor. Um, you know, like district leagues, um, and then travel teams. We have, I think, a similar setup to to a lot of clubs in the states. Sure. Um, we actually on Windsor. It's a border city with Detroit, so we would actually uh, in the fall, I think. Fall or spring, I think in the fall we would go play in in the Michigan League against you know like some of the bigger teams like Vardar over there or Michigan yeah. Metro Stars and okay. Waza. So, um, so I was always very involved in playing the game. But then even in my family, my grandfather was um, one of the first international referees in Algeria. He, he actually refereed the nineteen sixty five African Cup of Nations wow, third place good. match, a few Algerian Cup matches. Yeah, so he was w- one person that. You know, he was always in Algeria. I was always in Canada. And so to sort of have a, a real relationship or have a bond, we sort of bonded over football a lot. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Man, that's awesome. That's like, so you've really got a, a personal connection to AFCON now we're here, you know, quite a quite a ways down the road, but that's amazing. Um, at, a, at a young age, like I'm sure, you know, you're watching kind of football from from all over, but who who do you remember as being some of your earliest like heroes and 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 people that that really players, coaches, specific like teams and eras of teams that like really helped you fall in love with the game. Yeah, the 1998 World Cup was the first real big competition that I can remember. Um, I was seven years old at the time. And I remember my parents like pulling me into the living room and showing me Zinedine Zidane and being like, hey, he's Algerian, you know. And I just yes. didn't care that much because I saw Emmanuel Petit. He had a beautiful ponytail. <laughs> I like his style. He had like a cool bracelet on. And he was the player that I was like, oh, I like this guy. And uh, I asked my brother, who does he play for? He told me France and Arsenal. I was like, okay. So uh, Arsenal immediately became my team. And Petit, I think, only stayed for a year or two. And I started watching Arsenal. And it was actually Thierry Henry that ended up keeping my love for Arsenal going for, yeah. for a long time. Yeah. yeah. And that was really who I, I really enjoyed watching uh, growing up until the 2006 World Cup when it actually became Zindin Zidane again on that last, you know, World Cup run that he had that was so magical. So those were some of my first, you know, um, inspirations when watching football. Um, It wasn't really until later in life, maybe as I became a teenager, I was in high school, that I started really paying attention to African football on a real level. Okay. Okay. And then when did like, when did things kind of shift for you for like, hey, I think I think I'm so crazy about this game that that we need to we need to jump in, you know, head first. And, and when did you start really formally writing, reporting and, and getting involved with with telling stories around the game? Yeah, honestly, it was um, I remember it was an afternoon at my aunt's house. She's obviously also Algerian, my, my mom's sister. I was by myself in the basement, had the remote just flipping through the channels. And I, I go through the Algeria channel. Um, it was a satellite and um, 
There's a match Algeria against Cape Verde. This was in 2006 or 2007. And there were 55,000 people in the stands and Algeria scored and I just saw flares everywhere. Mm. And it really drew me in. I said, that's that's something that I find interesting, exciting. And this is something that I want to get into and, and be involved with. And immediately I started following the Algerian national team very, very closely. And this is also around the same time when the internet's starting to take off and we're getting, you know, statistics on websites and it made it easier to follow these different leagues uh legal or illegal streaming <laughs> yeah whatever you gotta do you're a fan man it's, it wasn't you know yeah so not like you're running so another that's, business we're just being fans here yeah i remember like being in high school and then you know finishing my work and 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 grabbing a spare piece of paper and just started drawing up formations and uh, what could, you know, the under 23 Algeria team look like? What could, and slowly my love for African football grew out of a love for Algerian football and then North African football. And now it's just a continental thing. So that's really how it was the seeing that match to Algeria Cape Verde and then the advent of the internet and, and yeah. finding, you know, all these different Algerian players playing in so many different European leagues that really drew me in. That's awesome. You can kind of pinpoint the moment, right? Like you kind of remember when they, when it, yeah, that, yeah. that spark really just, just lit, just like the, the flares in the stadium. So that's, that's awesome. Looking forward now, we, obviously it's like a, a massive time for African football with, with AFRICON, you know, right at our doorstep here, like for, for people who might not know uh, or be that well-versed and, and that familiar with African football, like what would you say makes AFCON unique compared to the World Cup, the Asian Cup, which is going to going to be running at the same time, like the Euros, uh, Copa America, we have the Gold Cup and, and CONCACAF. Like what 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 is what does AFCON have to offer the world of football like uniquely that that other competitions just can't compete with? Yeah, I think the cliche answer here is colorful fans, spectacular goals, mm -hmm. poor but entertaining officiating. And and it's true that these are all aspects that sometimes can make up, you know, the the entertainment factor of, of an African Cup of Nations. Um, me personally, what I love about the African Cup of Nations is that it brings together 54 countries into a single place for a month's time. And there is a cultural exchange that happens between Africans that I don't think happens, you know, at any other time, at any other place. Hmm. Um, and it happens on a very real level. And so where else am I going to speak to me as an Algerian from a, somebody from Mozambique or from Angola? Um, there's a, a player that from Egypt, his name is Shika Bella. He's uh, he plays for Zamalek. His real name is Mahmoud Abdelazak Hassan, <laughs> but they call him Shika Bella because uh, in 1990, there was a Zambian forward named Webster Shika Bella that played uh, really well in Africa Cup of Nations. And so wow. you see like, yeah, there's like these a Zambian and an Egyptian. Again, yeah, no yeah, like language, language right. connections, no religious, no ethnic, but there's a real exchange that happens. And I think that's really one of my favorite things um, about the African Cup of Nations. And I think that's what makes it special. Yeah, for sure. Just, just one more thing, sorry. sorry. Yeah, there's also very human stories. Like in a, in a period of time where football has become really sanitized and corporate and, and sometimes, you know, too big, too big for its britches. Um, some of the stories that you can get out of an AFCON, you know, are still very human. Um, some of these players are very, very humble. You still have access to players um, and, and they're connectable. You know, you can, you can feel like 
this person's just like me. It's not, there, there sure. are some exceptions to the rule. Mohammed Salah from Liverpool is one of those exceptions where he feels like a, a conglomerate, a business conglomerate. He doesn't really feel like a human being at times because he's so unattainable and because, you know, there are so many, there's his entourage around him is so big and so yeah. impenetrable. And the status but, he has, right? His role yeah, for that 100%. country. Like he doesn't, he yeah. can't be a normal person, right? Like yeah, the, it's, the, it's the status. Practically impossible. Yeah. But by and large, I think, most people, even some of the stars that you would think are are should be at that level, are are usually attainable, and can, you can connect with them on a human level. Yeah, and speaking of those those human stories, could you maybe give us one to keep an eye out for in this version of the Afcon? Like anything kind of that, that you're looking for? Obviously, beyond the goals, beyond the officiating, behind the the kits and the fans in the stadium, like anything that that fans you know sh should care about or could maybe maybe keep an eye peeled for. What I'm really looking forward to is going to the north of the Ivory Coast because in the middle of two in the middle of the 2000s the Ivory Coast was split into mm -hmm. the the Christian South and the Muslim North, um, and there were really on the brink of a civil war. There were rebel held territories in the north and Christian held or state held territories in the south. Sure. And so it was split along ethno religious lines, and that was a real big problem. And and it was really going to descend into a bloodbath. And what happens is. The Ivorian national team, which is so popular, like all African national teams are in their countries, they are, they first of all are on the back of three consecutive horrific showings at the AFCON in 2000, 2002, and then 2004, they didn't even qualify. Mm. But at the same time, they're on the brink of qualifying for the 2006 World Cup for the very first time. And this is, you know, the Didier Drogba, Didier Zokora, Bonaventure, yeah. Kalu, Bakari Kone, it's, it's that generation. And what Didier Drogba does is after their final qualifying match in Sudan, where they qualify at the very last minute because Cameroon missed the penalty kick in the last minute, again, in another match against Egypt. He's in Sudan. He grabs a microphone. He grabs a, a television camera and he puts out a plea to the Ivorian people to lay down their arms and to come together. And that plea is televised and it goes on the news for every day on a loop for, for three months, three to six months, he told me. Mm. Um, and so that, that's just like a moment that, you know, means more than football. You know, and, and later on, he wins the African Ballon d'Or just six months later, and he makes it a point to go up to the Muslim uh, North, rebel-held North, and to present it to the people over there. And a few months later, he's the one that goes to the Federation and says, let's play a friendly matchup there against Madagascar, in which they win 5-0. And so I, I want to go to the North now, and the stadium there in, in Buaki is called Stadium of Peace and Reconciliation. Mm. And I, I just want to go and speak to people and see how football managed to transcend politics and, and the ugly part of life, you know, and how football managed to, to mend those bridges. So that's one thing I'm looking forward to. That's that's amazing. I've heard obviously the the cliff notes of that story, right? I've heard like, oh yeah, Drogba stopped the civil war, like that, that but I didn't understand kind of like the the nuance of details of that. And and that's something that didn't really without without knowing the 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 details of like the the conflict at the time and the different social and religious dynamics, like just didn't didn't know that. So so I'm sure you know we'll, we'll definitely keep our, our eyes open for for your reports on that. I'll be more in, in Abidjan and, and Yamasukro, but uh, when you're up in, in Buake, we wish you the best and really get to to experience a place that probably doesn't get to to experience too much of that top level football. So I'm sure the people there are just going to be uh, absolutely absolutely uh, pumped and, and very ready for that. Uh, amazing. In terms of like now now on the field, you know we we know some of the the bigger teams, um, you know that have traditionally been strong like Egypt, you know the the record title holder, Senegal defending champions, Morocco with their performances in the uh, in the World Cup. 
who should people keep an eye out for as far as some of like the, not only the favorites, but some teams that could really sneak in and surprise. Yeah, honestly, I think you hit the favorites on the head. For me, it's going to be Egypt, Morocco, Senegal, and uh, Cote d'Ivoire. Cote d'Ivoire because they're hosts and because on paper, I think they are the deepest, most talented squad. Senegal are practically right there with them, and they're also the defending champions, and they have a lot of experience. Um, Egypt, I think, also very experienced. They know who their best players are, and their forward line is in fantastic form. And finally, uh, who's the last name that I'm missing out? Uh, Egypt, Morocco, Senegal, and Cote d'Ivoire. Th those are those are the four, I think. Okay. And Morocco, if I didn't speak about them, was the the World Cup performance and carrying that yeah, momentum sure. with, the, with their great coach um, into this tournament. So those are my four favorites, my out and out favorites. These are teams that expect to be in the semifinals. A quarterfinal berth would be a disappointment for them. As for dark horses, I think not many people are expecting much out of Algeria this time around, and I, something feels right about them. You know, unlike other teams, they didn't go to Dubai or to uh, Paris or, or wherever to to prepare for this tournament. They went to Togo in Lome uh, mm. in the heat and the humidity. They played tough, friendly matches against, you know, Togolese sides and Burundi and sides that not, not, don't necessarily want to play football. So I think they, they did the preparation really, really well. Excuse me. And morale is high in the camp. So two, two months ago, if you asked me about Algeria, I would have been pessimistic. For some reason, I don't know if it's just because the tournament's approaching and I'm being biased and that supporters getting into in me, but rationally, it feels like there there's something special happening there. Other than that, you know, your perennial dark horses are Burkina Faso and Mali. Mali have the deepest midfield, uh, I think one of the deepest midfields in world football. Player, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. Okay. Players like okay. Ibisuma from Spurs, um, Hamid Kamara from Monaco. Uh, Amadou Haidara, Diage Samaseku, Lasana Koulibaly, Ali Ujiang. These are all, some of them you might not have heard of, but they're all incredibly solid, reliable, dependable uh, ball winners in midfield. And so they're very difficult to play against. Um, and Burkina Faso, similar in that you might not have heard of some of their players, especially in midfield. Mm -hmm. Players like Gustavo Singare or Ibrahim Blatitoure. But these players have a lot of experience in the AFCON and they often make your superstars look bad. They'll play in very weird leagues at times, uh, but they have young, talented players like Don Bournemouth, Dango Watara, uh, Manchester City's, but currently on, on loan at Luton Town, Isa Kabore, Edmund mm -hmm. Tapsoba, Bayer Leverkusen, Adamo Nagalo, who's currently at uh, Nordschelen. These are all players that have really good talent that could play in the Champions League, and some of them do play in the Champions League. But then it's also their underrated players that people don't really account for that end up making life very difficult. And Burkina Faso have also been to two semifinals in the last three AFCON. So they're definitely a team to look out for too. Yeah, for sure. I didn't realize that that they performed that that well uh, in the last few versions. Um, and I think, yeah, I think there's something to be said in these major tournaments of just the magic of, of who is going to kind of show up. So like Morocco did in the World Cup, right? It's like, who, who's going to do that now on the, the AFCON stage? Um, yeah, I think, I think it's going to be, uh, you know, very interesting to see how things play out. I, I hope for, for the host Cote d'Ivoire, for the, the feeling, for the atmosphere of the tournament that, that they do well, but also can recognize that, that, uh, you know, having, having that home support is great, but maybe it can sometimes tip the pressure can, can tip over. So I'll be interested to see how they do. Cause now you're the second person who's kind of mentioned them as, you know, sure, they haven't had as strong of showings the last few years, but but it seems to be hitting at the right time. And then having the advantage of, of being at home could really be helpful for them. Uh, in terms of of like kind of the the knock on effects of, of AFCON, right? We, we look at 
Ivory Coast is saying this is going to be the best prepared, the best organized, the, the most secure uh, AFCON of, of hospitality. So and I'm seeing like the, the videos of pictures of the new stadiums and the investment and things like that. So if we if we want to look again at those kind of human stories in, in a couple of years time, you know, like how would you maybe compare this and the, the, the buzz, the anticipation for this AFCON versus some of the previous versions? Um, and like what what like are we really are we really going to see, you know, what is what is being on offer? Of course, we won't know until it happens. But but how does this kind of match up with previous versions and, and the the lead up and, and kind of the buzz for the tournament? Yeah, for those that don't aren't familiar with Cote d'Ivoire and, and Abidjan, particularly the capital city, it's probably one of the nicer cities in West Africa. A lot of amenities available. You can have your, you know, your fast food, your Western fast food chains. Um, there were at certain times, you know, up to 30,000 French people living in Abidjan, for example, lots of Lebanese. It's very cosmopolitan, multicultural, uh, lots of great amenities. It's it's really, really uh, a calm, cool, peaceful place with a lot of great facilities. Um, if we're comparing it to previous Afghans, look, I've been to three before. Um, Gabon, I felt like was a country that still had to build a lot of infrastructure, especially outside of the capital of Libreville. And so at times it felt like structure infrastructure was lacking and and that was a strain on us when we try to do our work as journalists egypt i don't think we can compare to, to any of them because it's a top five economy and it's 120 million people and i was mostly staying in cairo and cairo i think i mean i've only been to new york for 12 hours in my life but i think it's probably the closest thing we've <laughs> it's just a city that never sleeps and, and mm, right. uh, you can do anything anytime anywhere everything is possible um but cameroon i think was probably the most disorganized country in terms of uh, hosting the AFCON. Everybody was complaining about organization and logistics, and it just wasn't very simple to do our work. But these are things that, you know, when you cover an AFCON, it's sort of part and parcel of it. It's not something that you're going into sort of expecting everything to be a breeze. And if it were a breeze, I think it would take away some of the, the sweetness of the struggle. I, I don't sure. mind, you know, like struggling to find transportation, finally finding somebody, striking up a discussion, you know, these are... Otherwise, we would just go to Champions League matches in, in the exactly. Camp Nou and, and Emirates Stadium every week. But for me, some of the, the best parts of the AFCON are, you know, going through a little bit of struggle and difficulty and overcoming it. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's great uh, Great context, I think, for for myself, for our viewers, too, to, to see because everyone's always going to talk it up, right? The organizers are going to say, the people who have, who have planned it, they're always going to say that this is going to be the best tournament and, and everything. To, so yeah, to hear yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's it's like, we'll, we'll see, you know, we'll see, but it sounds like it could be on point. But then another thing I wonder about, you know, it, it, we, this topic came up a lot with the the Qatar World Cup with with even South Africa, with the Brazil World Cup, we've seen it is, you know, so all this investment is made in the infrastructure. And I think as far as like, you know, your roads improving, airports improving, transportation, like those are generally investments that that will be sustained as long as there's the political and financial ability to do so. But then when it comes to the stadiums, right, we talked about Qatar building all these these massive stadiums and now what are they doing? And then in Brazil, same sim similar situation we see like years later now. Could you talk a little bit about like some of the positives and then some of the drawbacks of, of a host country of a major sporting event like this? Yeah, for sure. So Gabon is, is the best example for me because, yes, they need a big stadium in the capital of Libreville. But it's just a country of a couple million people. Do they really need, you know, a 40,000 seater in Franceville, in, which is all the way east, uh, an eight hour car ride uh, in the middle of the, you know, the equator, the equatorial jungle, really? 
uh, in Africa? Is, do they really need one in OEM in particular? OEM is the same thing. It's it's even worse than responsibility. It's smaller. It's it's in the middle of the jungle and that has become a white elephant. You know, there are, you know, trees and vegetation sprouting on the running track there. And it, it, it was a very expensive, um, you know, uh, structure to build. At times, you know, there are sometimes diplomatic trade-offs that are used to, to build these stadiums. China sometimes will, will you know, build uh, these stadiums, sometimes for free to build up goodwill with governments to mm -hmm. strike up business deals after. It's called stadium diplomacy, Chinese stadium diplomacy on the African continent. It's something you can read about if you if you type it into Google. Um, but for, for the Ivory Coast, um, I think there's only one stadium that might be unnecessary, and that's the newest one. Uh, it's in Ebimpe, which is, a, you know, an hour away from Abbey Jones in the suburbs, um, and it's huge. And I just wonder, is it absolutely necessary? You, you really need one national stadium in Abidjan, and you mm -hmm. have one at the Stade Felix Houphouët-Banoui. Um, that's really like the, the main historic stadium. I think you, right. if you could just revamp that, you know, that was... For me, the, the one that's necessary, I don't think you need two. And the other one that you really don't need probably is Yamusukro because Yamusukro is a, a, a political administrative capital of, of the country. It's mm -hmm. not the a place where people live, really. It's not a place where people are going to go watch football. They're usually, you know, like civil servants or state functionaries. Or right. It's not people don't. It's not, you know, but Buake, yes, Buake needs a stadium. Abidjan needs probably one stadium. And what I like about the stadiums in San Pedro and Corhogo is that they're smaller uh, establishment there, you know, 20,000, 25,000 seaters. Uh, and you do want to have a stadium. You don't want to hyper-centralize everything just in the capital or in the major cities. You want to mm -hmm. have, you know, a yeah. 20,000 seater and a place like Corhogo, which is in the extreme North of the country. And you don't want people up there to feel like they don't have the infrastructure that other cities have. So I don't mind those ones in particular because they're smaller, but I do think maybe the, this extra one in Abidjan and maybe Yamusukro, I don't know if those are going to be uh, really useful after the tournament, especially considering that since the Civil War, really, the Ivorian League has by and large been played in Abidjan. It's yeah, very rare for teams question. to travel to yeah. places, you know, like San Pedro or Corhogo and or even in Buake, uh, because football wasn't played there. That that friendly that I was telling you about where the national team played in Madagascar was the first football match that was played there in years, uh, five, six years. So it became like a reliance on playing all your matches in Abidjan. And as a result, everything became hyper-centralized. And that's still something that we're feeling the effects of until today. Um, and so I don't know, like, yeah, the Yamusukro, the the extra one in, in Abidjan, I'm not sure are necessary. Yeah. And so that, that was going to be my next question, because I had heard that as well, that all of the, 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 the Abidjan, like top premier league of the championship is all played at one location. So it's centralized, which you can say, in leagues that struggle financially, clubs that maybe might struggle with the logistics and the the travel, that that can be a benefit. But it's it's it appears pretty obvious that that can have some some effects of being too insulated, of lacking access to other other uh, areas uh, within the country. Um, but but when when you're in Abidjan, I know you've got an event coming up uh, through through an organization, you know, a, a media publication that you're associated with called Africa as a country. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about that event, uh, kind of the, or let's step back and tell us about Africa as a country and what that's all about. And then uh, what you guys have planned for this event in Abidjan. Yeah, Africa as a country really, uh, <laughs> Africa as a country is a collective really of like academics, journalists. Uh, it's a cool, really cool team. And I, I got to be a part of the editorial committee uh, for this AFCON, at least I'm gonna be spearheading a lot of the coverage on that website. So if you're interested in what I've been saying, you know, I highly recommend you go check 
the website out. Uh, we're going to be running previews of the tournament and, and pretty thorough coverage. And it's going to be coverage of really the, ga- the, the tournament beyond the game. It's not really going to be heavily sporting uh, mm-hmm. analysis. Um, so if that's your thing, maybe you, you go elsewhere. But if you want to know more about Ivory Coast as a country and uh, some of the extra sporting um, things that are happening, then, then I highly recommend you check it out. And on January 16th in Abidjan at the Pic Vela Hotel, we're going to be having a, a watch party. Uh, on that day, the matches are going to be in Corhogo. So for the people that can't make the trip or don't want to make the trip, uh, they're going to be able to come to this hotel, watch the matches. Um, and at the same time, uh, we're going to have, you know, three or four panel talks about African football, one about the development of the women's game, uh, one about, you know, what this tournament means for the Ivory Coast as a country, and uh, one about how African football unites the continent. So uh, I think it's going to be a, a thing where you can maybe meet other journalists, maybe meet some former players who are, who are pretty well known, mm-hmm. uh, watch the matches. If you feel like eating, you can eat. And, and I think it's one of those events that you don't really have at a Euros or a Copa America, but we're also tight on the African continent. There's such a jovial and intimate and family atmosphere that we have. We try to have events like this almost at every tournament. That's awesome. That sounds like a, a great way to, to, as you mentioned, see beyond just the, the field, right? See beyond what's what's happening, especially, uh, you know, like for me, from my perspective, being an English speaker, we talked about this a little bit, it can be difficult to find a lot of information on French West Africa or a lot of other areas of Africa that are not necessarily putting out a lot of information in in English. So, you know, I'm really looking forward to this, really hoping to be able to, to make that event and be able to connect with people too. Um, Beyond the AFCON, you know, people want to follow your work. Can you tell us a little bit more about your podcast and maybe where uh, the best place to to keep an eye on on all of your upcoming pieces and stories? Yeah, so uh, I've started a new podcast. It's just been a, a few months now. I'm very happy with a lot of the uh, traction and response we've been receiving over our AFCON previews. Uh, the podcast is called the African Five Aside Podcast. Um, we tend to, as a, as I was saying earlier about Africa as a country, we try to go beyond, you know, the X's and O's and try to speak about uh, political, social, economic issues within the African football game, uh, within the African game in football. Um, besides that, for this tournament, I'm going to be uh, contributing to Al Jazeera English, so you can find some of my coverage there. Um I'm most probably going to be doing social media work for Copa 90 on uh, on TikTok, on Instagram, okay. and, and on Twitter as well. And um, I'm also going to be writing on africasacountry.com and producing my, my own podcast as well. So that's where you can find all of my work. Uh, and and also on <laughs> also going to be doing some radio for the BBC. So uh, these tend to be very busy tournaments for me. Um, and if you really want to find you know any and all of that in one place, you could just follow me on Twitter. It's awesome. uh, at Mizahi, which is my last name, and then Maher, which is my first name, at Mizahi Maher. Cool. So I'll definitely throw those links up um, and everybody. So what I'm hearing then is pretty much anywhere you're going for news in the English-speaking world, you're probably going to see Maher's work, uh, which we look forward to. Um, but yeah, man, thank you so much for for meeting with us. The way that we end each podcast, I'd love to get your your answer here. Could you finish the sentence, because football? Because football means so much to me, I've made it my life's mission to tell as many stories as I can in African football. It's, That's solid, man. Very well done. Right on the as spot. Usual, I love I putting people on the spot. So you, you can sink or swim and, and you swam there. So well done. And thank you, Maher, so much for your time. We know it's uh, you're, you're rushing, getting ready to to fly off to Cote d'Ivoire. And uh, you know we look forward to seeing more there, but we really appreciate it. And for everybody watching, thank you so much. And we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks, Andrew.